Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kia and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balancer Ho. Coming up later, we'll hear about our very own Kiwi asteroid hunter. But first, how well do we know the seafloor? Marine geologist Geoffroy Lamarche from Niwa says not well at all. There are areas which are really well mapped, but they are tiny. We know very, very well about one volcano and we know very well about one shallow piece of the seafloor. But most of the remote places and even even not so remote places, like as soon as you go a few tens of kilometres from shore, we know very little. We've made a, a calculation that if you divide the oceans into square of one kilometre by one kilometre, only 18% of those cells will have a true measurement in it, a sounding of source. All the others will be either interpolated or then derived from satellite altimetry, which is very good, but not nowhere near as good as a sounding, which gives you a, pre- a very good accuracy. So if you strip away all the water, the seabed is a complex in terms of its topography, its land, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. And we see it as marine geologists and marine geophysicists. Every time we go at sea, even now around New Zealand area, we know very well. And every time we bring uh, an equipment which is more precise or more accurate than the other, we discover new features, so a new channel, a new seamount, a new uh, false scarp. And all those have got relevance in terms of resources, in terms of environment, in terms of benthic habitat, in terms of uh, positioning of a platform infrastructure, whether it be cables or not. And so those things have got are very important to know. At the moment, for example, in the middle of the Pacific, you could have large mountains, literally mountains several hundred metres above the seafloor, unknown. It is surprising how little we know And there are consequences from not knowing. In early 2005, for example, the US nuclear submarine San Francisco collided at full speed with an uncharted submarine mountain or seamount near Guam. One sailor died, others were injured, and while the sub didn't sink, it was badly damaged. So knowing what lies under the surface of the sea is important. And making maps of all those features so that you and I can safely navigate is the task of the New Zealand Hydrographic Authority. It's part of Land Information New Zealand, or LINS, and is led by National Hydrographer Adam Greenland. Hydrography is the science of surveying, describing and then creating charts for bodies of water, be that lakes and rivers or the ocean. The result might be a highly detailed bathymetric chart, which is the underwater equivalent of a topographic map. Or it might be a nautical navigation chart, which is less detailed but carefully designed to ensure ships don't run into things. Making these charts is the job of hydrographic surveyor Annette Wilkinson, and when I make a visit to Lynn's, she pulls out an old chart of Rangunu Harbour in the far north 
to show me how manual the job used to be. So this is showing a pretty picture of what you received years and years ago. So this is from 1958, and you see people have hand-drawn soundings, and you see the data is relatively sparse, so there's only a couple of depths. But they kind of put lots of effort in to colour-code it, and you even have nice views of the mountain ranges so you know what the coast looks like. So at its very simplest, why do we need maps like this? So what this does, it describes the bathymetry of the seabed, and the bathymetry is the shape and depth of the seabed. And what we're looking for in particular is hazards on the seabed, so we can ensure we chart them, and the navigators and the ships know the areas to avoid, but they also know the deep water where they can take their ships um, and bring all their goods in and out of New Zealand. So for a chart like this, 1958, how did they get those depth measurements, those soundings? I think at that time I was still putting down a lead line, so they kind of had to make sure they're kind of going in a straight line with the ship, stop, put the line down, pull it back up, and there were some, some skillful people reading it and documenting it. So pretty much you drop the line until it hits the bottom? Yep. And then you can see on the piece of rope how deep it was? Correct. Pull it up, do that again? Yep. It's pretty labour-intensive, wasn't it? Extremely labour-intensive. So while some of this may be lead line, traditional lead line, uh, others would be single-beam acoustic echo sounders that they were used. But all of this that you see in front of you here is really a kind of work of art, um, and so it's all been hand-drawn. But now you've got a new chart as well. So this is a modern representation of the paper chart. However, the data that this is based on still uses... Um, this data that was gathered in 1958. It's nice you can keep building on the original data, though. It is, and it also shows um, stood the test of time. Um, and, you know, that's quite a few years ago, and we do have this absolute work of art here. And you have then the modern equivalent, which is quite a technical piece of uh, charting um, and the way it's presented with internationally recognised standards. Um, and from that, then, you're creating electronic charts, which are the charts of the future. Am I right in thinking that the very first seafloor surveying was done by Captain Cook? Yes, he, he was um, one of the first, for sure, um, and he did an enormous amount of, of work uh, in and around um, the coast of New Zealand in terms of mapping, um, and one of the places he visited, Ship Cove, uh, over in Queen Charlotte uh, uh, Channel, um, over in Melbourne Sounds, uh, is an area we've recently mapped, uh, again, using full multi-beam surveys, so full seabed coverage. So we're just moving from the paper chart to a computer. So here, maybe starting with the 3D view. So this is quite different to what you've just seen on the paper. So you can zoom around and you kind of see a lot of detail, see lots of holes and structures, what you couldn't see with just one depth measurement. I think what's impressive is that when you make maps on land, you can take aerial photographs, you can wander around on the, on the land and, and actually see things and measure things it's just so much harder in the sea isn't it because there's all this water in the way it is that's correct so we have mapped um in partnership with Melbourne district council the whole of queen charlotte sound and also tory channel entrance and we've done that using modern acoustic multi-beam systems which do a whole sweep of the seafloor so we so have the ship sails over the top correct yeah and pings multiple times across a swath Okay, and sort of, if you like, paints the seabed with acoustic energy. And we get the first return back, and that is the depth, and then we get other information back, uh, and that provides interesting contrast in terms of what's in the water column and also the reflectance of the seabed, and that tells us and characterises what the seabed is. So 
from one instrument we can gain a lot of information which are then used to process through for nautical charts in this case and also for marine habitat. What's the scale of the data you collected in Ship's Cove? So in terms of pings, and that can depend on the water depth and will depend on the water depth and the the pulse repetition rate, how fast you're sampling the seabed. But essentially, within this area, um, we've got multiple pings per metre, which means we've got full coverage and we can then detect all hazards um, on the seabed. There are some techniques, though, that allow us to see in shallow water, um, and you um, can now use satellite-derived bathymetry um, and also uh, light ranging. Um, So using pulsed lasers, you can also penetrate and uh, gather information in shallow waters. So there are complementary techniques. And does that data get collected? It comes to you. What do you do with it? We basically check if our contractor did what we asked them to do and if they kind of meet all our specifications and then once we're happy with that we actually pass it on to the cartographers which sit more at the the other end and they actually produce and update our chart products so nowadays they will start with the ENC. ENC being? An electronical nautical chart. We now have 100% coverage of all New Zealand waters with electronic navigational charts or ENCs and these use onboard ships and onboard ships computer systems for uh, their navigation Uh, and that's seamless around the world. We just recently released a new talk on our webpage showing spatially the extents of our ENCs. So I think what's surprising to many is the extent of coverage that we have. Our charting coverage extends through southwest pacific um, through tonga and cook islands and samoa down through new zealand um, and then down into sub antarctica and um, into the ross sea so we have quite an extensive area of charting coverage where we publish and maintain official charts nautical charts for new zealand and they come at a very uh, a wide variety of scales some of which are used for planning purposes and passage planning others of which are used Um, for going in and out of ports and harbours and actually berthing ships alongside as well. Well, as well as these shallow coastal waters, we have the second deepest ocean trench, isn't it? The Kumadek Trench. So, I mean, how well do we know that? How do you go about surveying that? Well, you would use some very low-frequency multi-beam echo sounders, and that is what has been done. So it's not mapped um, from the surface at a high resolution. In addition to that, you can use um, autonomous underwater vehicles and they can use that kind of technology and they'll get closer to the bottom um, and they'll be able to map features then and the seabed in much higher resolution. So there's multiple ways in which you can map both from the surface but also from little underwater midget submarines, if you like. In the end, so once all the processes are done, we also kind of make this data available to other people to use it. So, for instance transport agencies use it when they have to rebuild roads along the coast like they did in Kaikoura so they use the data to do some modelling to kind of make a better design so we have something called the bathymetry index so bathymetry is basically the depth data we collect we call it bathymetry and you can go in our LINS data service and type in bathy index and you find the extents of surveys we have But we're also looking at how this data might be used in coastal mapping projects and joining land and sea and having seamless mapping um, from land into the sea. Um, And we're looking at programmes of work, how we might do that, because 
that is going to impact uh, New Zealand in the future in terms of climate change, um, in terms of uh, what's happening in terms of the coast um, and tsunami inundation. Just thinking of natural events and thinking of your mention of Kaikoura, obviously some of the seafloor around there changed rather dramatically as a result of the big earthquake, particularly things like the canyon. Well, yes, that's true. So uh, we also... Um, image the uh, Papatea Fault um, and that shows very distinctively um, on some of the sonar imagery that we have collected. So in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake we were very fortunate in that we could access laser bathymetry from Australia, from the Australian Defence Service and they did a, a survey for us and they provided that data and that data was stitched in with data from the topographic side um, and the land side and to produce a seamless map and they were able to use that data in their initial assessments for the roading and the slipping. And now we've done a more detailed and more controlled survey um, and you can clearly see um, the faults there um, and how that extends and propagates offshore. And that's hugely exciting for us and for New Zealand. Adam is also very excited about a new international mapping project called Seabed 2030. It's a global initiative, and that's through the general bathymetric chart of the oceans. So the acronym for that is JEBCO. Um, and so for 100 years now plus, JEBCO has been in existence um, to map the seafloor. And they produce a number of grids for the seafloor, which show the bathymetry of the seafloor. Currently, that's very coarse um, and hasn't been properly um, mapped. Um, and so this project is, over the next 10, 20 years now to fully map the seafloor to a higher resolution because many areas of the seafloor are not mapped at all directly and so there's a lot that lies beneath that needs to be revealed. It's kind of like that old saying that we know space better than we do our own oceans. Well, we, we do. We've mapped Mars, the Moon and other planets to a higher resolution, better coverage than we know and, and have mapped our ocean beds to. Um, so it's about time we started mapping our own Earth. And considering that the Earth is 70% covered in water, I think we should be call, calling it water rather than Earth. The New Zealand contribution to Seabed 2030 will be jointly managed by Linz, GNS Science and NIWA, where Geoffroy, who we heard from earlier, will coordinate the initial data collection. The Seabed 2030 will be divided into four centres. The Arctic and North East Pacific Ocean, the Southern Ocean and Antarctic, the Atlantic and Indian Ocean, and then the fourth centre will be the South and West Pacific. It's about 124 million square kilometres. It includes the two deepest trench in the world, the Kermadec Trench, which we always called because it's in our water in New Zealand, and the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest by, uh, about, I think, 10.8 kilometres deep. We've got a very remote area in the, in the middle of the South Pacific. We've got estuaries and we've got shallow seas and we've got small developing states like... Tonga and Fiji and Samoa and we've got China. So the diversity in geographically, economically, geomorphologically is, is incredible. So how are you going to do it? So there are several initiatives. The, the first one that we're starting to is to gather all the data available. We know that there are a lot of data around that we are not aware of. So there are the data that have been used by JEPCO. Then we need to ask everyone, have you got data in your back drawer and your bottom drawer there that you've never used? Oh, yes, that's true, I've got those data. So we need to do what we call a gap analysis to start with. 
Then we need to go to private organization, private sector. So the surveying organization, the like of Frugro, the oil and gas company, the, the, and say, look, you must have some data that belongs to clowns that are old and they are happy to release it to the public. So we need to negotiate to those people. And they say, yeah, you can have our data. Then we need to go to the Navy. They have a lot of data. And we can say to the Navy, look, we want your data. We don't want the one meter by one meter, which have got some really high... Uh, sensitivity, of course, we understand that. But why don't you degrade it and give us a 400 by 400? Because that's what we want. So that's the first thing. Gather the data that already exists. And that will take some time. Then it's to acquire new data. So for that, we've already started is to try to develop what we call crowdsourcing. So having everyone involved. The first one we want to involve are really the industry, uh, the surveying industry, which are vessels that goes at sea all the time almost 360 days a year, those vessels go from one point to the other, whether they be surveyor, cruise ship, container ship, fishing industry. And those ones, they always have some sort of eco sounder on them. So we want those people to give us their data, at least in transit. Sometimes they do thousands of kilometers, and usually they don't turn their eco sounder or they don't turn their um, acoustic sounder on because why would we collect data when no one wants them? So we say, look, Turn it on, we take those data. Uh, and actually, Fugro has already accepted. In two months, they've already given us around 200,000 square kilometer of data. We know that Ocean Infinity has given us the data they've, they've collected over the MH370, the, the Malaysian airline flight. So let's just pause there because that's actually quite a well-known example of when that plane went missing and they started searching for it in the Indian Ocean. Suddenly, for the first time, I think the general public realised that there's a really complex seafloor out there. We know almost nothing about it. Two companies, Fugro and Ocean Infinity, two of the most sophisticated and most well-equipped companies went there to look for it. And the detail, the detail that they, they brought up with their map were fantastic. The scientists were very excited. Okay, they didn't find the, the wreck and that was a shame, but the detail for science was amazing. And one of the bigger winners will be the science community. Thanks, Geoffroy. Geoffroy Lamarche is a geologist at Niwa and the University of Auckland. We also heard from Annette Wilkinson, a hydrographic surveyor at Linz, and Adam Greenland, who's the national hydrographer with the New Zealand Hydrographic Authority. Koto tato al horihori tenei, he hotaka e panaki te putaio, te taio, me te kopapa o te ora. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ. I'm Alison Balance. And now, asteroids. World Asteroid Day is on the 30th of June, so it's a good time to reflect on things buzzing around in space. Earlier this month, for example, two small asteroids slammed into the Earth's atmosphere and burnt up on entry. These events are often a complete surprise, so NASA was pleased to report that one of them was actually detected a few hours before impact, and astronomers were able to plot its course and predict when it would hit. Neither of these asteroids was large enough to do any damage, but that possibility is certainly something that NASA and United States agencies have been thinking about quite a lot. Just last week, they released a National Near-Earth Object Preparedness Strategy and Action Plan, which is quite a mouthful, but is basically about being better prepared to deal with asteroids that come too close for comfort. New Zealand astronomer Duncan Steele has spent much of his career thinking about potential asteroid impacts, and William Ray tracks him down 
to find out more. If you're driving south down State Highway 1 towards Kaikoura, you'll cross a small bridge just before you get to the boundary between Marlborough and Canterbury. That bridge spans Woodside Creek, and if you wander along that creek for five or 600 metres, you'll see a very strange-looking cliff. Well, the cliff itself isn't that strange. What's weird is what's been done to it. It has dozens of holes drilled into it at regular intervals. Dr Duncan Steele was studying physics at Canterbury Museum at the time those holes were drilled back in 1977, and what came out of them inspired his life's work. Back in 1980, there was a seminal paper published uh, by a team in the US, which I guess was the first real push forward in terms of the idea uh, that an asteroid or comet impact wiped out the dinosaurs in a mass extinction event 65 million years ago. That idea came from data collected in the geological strata in three different locations, one in Denmark, one in Italy, and one here in New Zealand. Very few people seem to know that, unless they're actually geologists. That's what those holes in the cliff at Woodside Creek are. The rocks in that cliff span the KPG boundary, the point at which the age of the dinosaurs suddenly ends. Samples taken at Woodside Creek and all around the world show a thin layer of iridium right on the boundary. Iridium is an element that's very rare on Earth, but relatively common in asteroids and comets, so the theory ever since 1980 has been that the extinction of the dinosaurs was largely caused by a massive object hitting the Earth from outer space. At the time, I was here in New Zealand. I was a a graduate student at the University of Canterbury. I was building a radar for studying meteors. Now, meteors are a synonym for shooting stars, so the, the things you see with your eye at night, but with a radar... We can detect much smaller or fainter ones, if you like. And I just realised that there must be... OK, there were lots we were detecting with this radar or lots you see with your naked eye at night. Uh, and every so often something really huge has hit the Earth. We know that from the dinosaur extinction and other extinction events. But I realised that there must be some in between which hit the Earth not frequently enough to be uh, a daily or yearly um, a problem as such, but maybe, you know, frequently enough such that we do need to be thinking about them and concerned about them. Since the 1980s, Duncan Steele has been involved in various efforts to discover and track comets and asteroids which pose a risk to Earth. He was one of six foreign members of NASA's Space Guard Committee in the early 90s and has twice served as Vice President of the Space Guard Foundation, which helps coordinate detection and tracking of potentially dangerous objects in the solar system. He's also written several books on the subject. These days, Dr Steele works for the government-run Centre for Space Science Technology in Alexandra. Ironically, it's one of the few jobs he's had which has nothing to do with comets or asteroids. But he's still involved in the field and says it's a constant struggle to get people to take the risk from asteroids and comets seriously. We often talked about this thing, calling, calling it the giggle factor, because when you suggest to people that asteroids are dangerous, you know, their immediate response is, well, that's just nonsense. When, when, when was the last person killed by an asteroid? One of my answers to that, I mean, I've got various answers. One of them is, well, you know, hydrogen bombs, fusion bombs, or thermonuclear weapons, as they're called, they're clearly, they're dangerous. And yet they've never been used in anger. The the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the old, um, call them atomic bombs, they're fission bombs using uranium and plutonium. 
And so it, it, clearly it's invalid to say, well, they're not dangerous uh, and laugh about them. These things clearly are dangerous. The object which wiped out the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometres across, but asteroids don't have to be that big to cause widespread devastation. In 1908, an object about 100 metres across exploded above Siberia, the famous Tunguska event. It flattened 2,000 square kilometres of forest, but luckily no people were anywhere near the spot at the time. If it happened above Auckland, it would kill nearly everybody in Auckland. That's just the reality. It would set the whole city on fire and the blast wave would would level the place. And these things do hit the earth every so often. It's uncertain how often they hit the earth. Is it once per century? Is it once per thousand years? We don't know. But it's somewhere in that sort of ballpark figure. And with more and more people now on the earth and and people concentrated in cities, you know, unfortunately, the the chance of this sort of thing happening is something we need to be cautious about. Where are we at with the sort of percentages of objects that size being tracked? I mean, not the not the really giant ones, but the ones that could cause really significant damage on the scale of a city or even a, you know, a small country. The problem with these smaller asteroids, let's say 50 to 100 metres in size, is that uh, we can only really detect them uh, when they come close enough to the Earth for our telescopes to, to get enough light from them uh, to pick them up. And that needs them to be within a few times the distance to the moon. And they don't come back to be that close to the Earth very often. Uh, certainly, we fa- we, if you like, we found most of the easier ones. You know, objects bigger than one kilometre in size we could detect even though um, they're out past the orbit of Mars uh, because they're reflecting enough sunlight back to us such that we can detect them with our telescopes. So there's only so much we can do. Um, you know, Sensibly, I think we have the capability to discover objects and track them, probably getting to 90% levels of the population of, of, of Earth-crossing asteroids, down to about, let's say, four, 500, 600 metres in size. If we want to go down to smaller objects than that, so to the 50 and 100 metre objects, we're going to need a, a bigger telescopes. They've, they've got to be these peculiar wide-field telescopes. And there's only one uh, telescope in the world which is suitable for that. It's a telescope developed by... DARPA, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency in, in the US a few years ago. Last I heard, it was being moved to Australia, to the Northwest Cape, where it was going to be used for tracking um, space junk especially, but it, it will pick up lots of asteroids. So really, it's, I mean, it's conceivable that an object that big could hit us with virtually no warning. Oh, William, it's not just conceivable, it's the most likely thing to happen. That's a bit grim, but the relative risk from a city-destroying asteroid is pretty low given how infrequently they hit the Earth. What really keeps Dr Duncan Steele up at night is smaller objects. You know, the thing which I, if if you like, I worry about most is something like a, a half or one megaton event occurring over a region when there's heightened international tension and the people who are there don't understand what it is and react to that by launching an attack upon a neighbour, which is um, unwarranted. The kind of asteroid Dr Steele is talking about would only measure tens of metres across, and we've actually seen an object that size strike just a few years ago at Chelyabinsk in Russia. It came out of nowhere. A bright speck in the sky, soon streaking across the horizon, followed by an almost apocalyptic scene, a blinding flash of light, and then all hell broke loose. 1,200 people were hospitalised. Thankfully, 
nobody uh, was actually killed, but there was an awful lot of uh, injuries from the blast wave knocking people over and also blasting out uh, glass in, in factories and, and schools and, and, and cutting people with the flying glass. So these things do happen, um, unfortunately. So what can we do about all this? Let's start on the personal level. If you do ever see anything in the night sky, or indeed the dayside sky, which is brighter than the sun, take cover. Tens of seconds or a few minutes later, the blast wave is coming. Get behind a wall, get away from windows and, and, and so on. We were talking about Chelyabinsk. There was a primary school teacher who saw the flash out of the primary school windows and had the fantastic presence of mind to tell all the kids to get underneath their desks. Two minutes later, all those windows blasted out. Um, you know, there would have been kids badly, badly cut if, if she hadn't done that. Having said that, it all sounds very melodramatic. You know, the overwhelming odds are you're never going to experience that. And when it comes to the bigger stuff, well, diffusing international tensions might be a good start to make sure there are no unfortunate misunderstandings when there's a 10 megaton blast over North Korea. Otherwise, Dr Steele says early warning is key. We've already heard that the world's detection systems have a blind spot when it comes to objects less than one kilometre in size. But if we do spot something big coming our way, what can we do to stop it? It's something Hollywood has been thinking about for a while, and inevitably they come up with one answer. It's what we call a global killer, the end of mankind. We nuke this thing from the inside. How? We drill. We're bringing the world's best. The fallback would be, unfortunately, using a nuclear weapon. Uh, but there have been other ways um, suggested. For example, it could be as simple as painting the thing black or painting it white. Uh, you could say, well, how do you do that? Am, am I joking? Well, no, in fact, changing the surface properties of an object can make a difference in terms of the way in which, if you like, sunlight pushes upon that particular object. And for some size objects, that is a feasible way of diverting it as long as we had a great deal of warning. So if we had 23 years warning, that might be a viable way. Or indeed, just putting down a rocket booster and giving it a bit of a nudge. I like to use 23 years as being an example because... If you multiply 23 years, the number of seconds in 23 years, by a speed of one centimetre per second, just one centimetre per second, you find the total number of centimetres which you will move an object is equivalent to the Earth's radius plus 400 kilometres, which means that if you did change an object's speed by one centimetre per second, 23 years out, uh, then you would be able to get it to miss the Earth. Of course, it's much more likely that none of this will be necessary, and Duncan Steele's asteroid and comet research isn't all about death and destruction. There are lots of beneficial side effects of searching for potentially world-destroying objects. We're exploring the solar system. We're realising that there are lots of things in the solar system which previously we had very little idea about, and that's exciting in itself. Yes, it does uh, raise the, you know, the, the, the idea that these things can be hazardous to us, um, but there are also lots of positive things to think about them. There are two large companies now in the US which are planning to mine asteroids. Um, and you could say, well, isn't this, you know, bunk science fiction nonsense? Well, well, the answer is no. You know, this is something which is a viable thing to do, not too far into the future. It may be still 15 or 20 years away, but as we move off the planet and we still want to start building um, bigger habitats in space, maybe space colonies eventually, we need the building materials to make those out of. And, and asteroids and comets are chock-a-block full of those things. We can't keep launching things off the surface of the Earth because it is so expensive to, to hoist something up into Earth orbit and then out into interplanetary space. So we need the raw materials out there to build things with. We need water in order for 
you know, astronauts to drink and wash with. We can derive the oxygen from the water in order for them to be able to breathe. And comets are chock-a-block full of this stuff. Asteroids, we know, are full of all sorts of different uh, rare and precious uh, minerals and metals and so on. And so these things are the things which we will be using as sources of raw materials in the future. And Duncan Steele says there are even more fundamental reasons to be interested in these objects. Uh, You and I are largely made of material which was deposited on the early Earth by comets. Uh, The early Earth was was very, very hot, and so we believe it had, in essence, no water, no organic chemicals. We believe that those have been delivered to the Earth by comet and asteroid impacts, especially over the first few hundred million years since the Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago. So we've got a special interest, I guess, for for studying them and, and wanting to know more about them. Thanks, Duncan. That was astronomer Duncan Steele, who is Chief Systems Architect at the Centre for Space Science Technology. He also has Minor Planet 4713 Steele, named after him, as well as a lunar-roving robot in an Arthur C. Clarke novel. That story was produced by William Ray. And that's the show. You can listen to those stories again and check out the written features and photos at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World and we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. The National Garden Bird Survey kicks off this weekend and runs for a week if you've got an hour to get out and count some birds. Thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance and I'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, it's good night from me, Paul Marie.